Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 239 of Public Interest Podcasts with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with Dr. Al Summer, Professor of Ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a Dean Emeritus of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Summer is the recipient of the Laska Prize for his work to eliminate pediatric night blindness and mortality through vitamin A supplements, also reducing maternal mortality, and is a university distinguished professor at Johns Hopkins University. Al, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, and it's my privilege to be able to do this. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, first question I'd like to pose to you, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Ah, well, <laughs> well, most things that I've done uh, were done largely because I found them interesting. Mm-hmm. And many years ago, early in my career, I discovered quite accidentally public health, which is to say, having spent years taking care of patients one at a time, which is very gratifying, and of course you're helping people, so you love to do that, uh, I was thrown into a conflict situation, a smallpox epidemic, uh, as a uh, officer in the United States Public Health Service, and discovered that suddenly spending just as much energy and time and thought on a population's risk of disease and death and malnutrition, that the decisions I made, the discoveries I made, the thought processes I used actually affected millions of people at a time. And that feeling that what I could contribute could affect millions of people at a time sort of drove me in a direction of public health. As much as I love taking care of people one at a time, <clears throat> still the, the uh, magnitude of being able to positively impact the health of people millions at a time based on research that I did or policies that I helped to devise based upon that research uh, was sort of drove me in this direction. Now let's delve into that epidemic for a minute. It was 1970 in Bangladesh in the midst of a civil war, correct? Correct. So was it frustrating at all knowing that there was actually a vaccine out there that could have stopped the entire epidemic from even starting? Well, in a way it wasn't as much frustrating as being action-oriented. So actually the war had just come to an end. Uh I had been evacuated during the war. I and my family had been evacuated from what was then East Pakistan and became Bangladesh during the war. When the war was over, I was ready to go back to, in order to set up a survey to, as we had done following a big cyclone disaster about a year before that, to establish what were the needs of the population, both for immediate relief and then rehabilitation services, but I was not allowed to go because I was a U.S. civil servant and the U.S. was tilting towards Pakistan and would not allow any of its people to go back to this new country of Bangladesh to help out. Then the smallpox outbreak occurred, largely, we believe, because smallpox broke out in the refugee camps of Bengalis who were in, had gone across the border as refugees in India. There were about 10 million of them. And <clears throat> at the end of the war, these 10 million people, some of them with smallpox, are migrating back across this entire new country to get back to their home villages 
So they're spreading smallpox as they move through this unimmunized population. And so WHO, because I knew the countryside had been working in the country, I didn't know anything about smallpox at the time, teamed me up with somebody who had spent seven years working in Africa on smallpox. And we were sent basically to establish a beachhead, Mm -hmm. start up operations to be able to begin to contain the spread of smallpox and then ultimately to eliminate them. So we flew back into this hurricane of smallpox basically and it was really, you know, how do we get this stuff out there quickly and start immunizing people and contain the and stop the epidemics where they were. So a lot of public health is about mitigating risk. To what extent were you worried about exposing yourself to risk, both violence in the post-Civil War, creation of new countries, but also exposure to a very deadly disease? I'm sure you were inoculated. And also your family. And in this foreign area, the U.S. said that you weren't going to go there representing them. So you go to another organization, the WHO. And what was going through your mind when you were thinking about exposing yourself to risk? You know, I was young and foolish. <laughs> and so I didn't worry about risks. Uh, probably the riskiest time was before we evacuated. We did all. I used to drive people in the trunk of my car past these Patan AK-47 nasty-looking guys, yeah. security checkpoints, so they could get out into the countryside. These were politicians and academics who were being murdered right and left by the Pakistan they army. They were being murdered. They were being murdered. So they would come and hide in our house. We, and I mean, this sounds like a World War II grade yeah. B war movie. But it was real. I mean, we would, but we had this feeling. If we were young, we were sort of, you know, in, uh, invincible, and we could get this done. And and to a large degree, nobody, none of us, none of the expatriates got hurt. And I did used to hide people in the house and put them in the trunk of the car and drive them through these guard posts mm-hmm. and they get in the countryside, and then they could. Uh, get to India. Well, you had a wife and kids at this. And I had a wife at the first, when we lived there before and during the war, a wife and a uh, one-year-old son. And then when I came back to the smallpox eradication, uh, they didn't come with me because things were really quite unsettled. But as things, I was there for three months and they came for the last month. And the joke about all this, of course, is now I have a, a daughter who is three months old and uh, it's a little bit risky vaccinating a newborn infant with smallpox. It's a very nasty vaccine. It's very protective, but it's nasty. Can you explain to our listeners who <clears throat> don't even understand vaccines? Is it an attenuated virus? So the, 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 the original smallpox vaccine is basically some as yet to be determined offshoot of the one that Jenner used in the late 1700s. So it was some version of cowpox that has migrated over the years. And the reason it's nasty is it is not highly attenuated. And so that while most people it's perfectly safe and you get your little blister on your arm Mm -hmm. after you've had it because it's been a local, basically, um, cowpox infection Mm -hmm. which blisters. And that's how you know (coughs) the vaccine has actually worked and it was live and working. Uh, and it gives, you know, essentially 100% immunity once that happens. Trouble is that little babies are not supposed to get them because you need to have a pretty good immune response. And so, uh, and the danger with that vaccine is people who don't have a good immune response, they can actually get systemic cowpox, if you will, but it's called systemic vaccinia. They can die from it and they can spread it to other people who have a dermatitis. Anyone who's got an infection whose yeah. skin is not entirely intact if you touch them, they can get the virus. And if they don't have a robust immune response. <clears throat> so uh, in order for our daughter to come, 
uh, my colleagues, since I was still working for CDC and I knew everybody there, um, uh, arranged to get a very high-potent uh, uh, auto cowpox uh, um, counter vaccine to give her mm-hmm. so that she wouldn't she herself wouldn't suffer as a baby from getting disseminated right. vaccine. So she did fine. Okay. The reason I'm telling you this story is, so they joined me for the last month in uh-huh. the country before I had to come back to CDC in Atlanta. And as we are leaving on this, going through, you know, security and guards on the once a week flight yeah. from Dhaka, Bangladesh to Delhi, India, this officious health person Mm -hmm. stops us and says it points to our three month old and says she can't go I said well what do you mean she can't go said well she's not been vaccinated against smallpox and she had a yellow card that Uh showed she had been but he was right about one thing is that after you get vaccinated one week later a physician is supposed to say yes you develop little blisters on your arms that's called a take so we know that the vaccine worked and of course in the rush for her to come out, yeah. you know, my wife had forgotten to go back and get this follow-up stamp, but she had this scar on the side of her arm. So I turned to this health official and I said, well, look at that scar in her arm. What do you think that is? He said, well, it looks like a smallpox scar. I said, so she's been vaccinated, right? <laughs> to which he says, well, I don't know how old that is. I said, she's three months old. How old can it be? <laughs> the vaccine was good for seven to 10 years at least. And he and he would not budge. And we hear the plane warming up. It was a Sunday morning, and I had the home phone number, because he was a colleague of mine, of the Minister of Health of Bangladesh. <laughs> now, the likelihood that the phone worked at the uh-huh. airport, or that he would have been home that morning, uh-huh. or that he would have answered the phone, is about one in a million. Yeah. But nonetheless, that all worked. He yelled at this guy. We got on the airplane. We got out of there. It's a fascinating <laughs> story. So... And all this, I guess, you, your, I guess your mantra kind of is to take the most exciting path. When a young student comes to you and says, well, should I plan to be the CEO of a billion-dollar corporation? Or am I going to be the next dean? Or what kind of Nobel Prize am I going to win? You just advise them to take the most exciting path. And, of course, the thing that you're most known for, uh, determining vitamin A supplements can really, uh, I guess, prevent childhood death, all kinds right. of death and, right. and, and blindness. That's something that you stumble into in Indonesia, right. Right. replicated in Nepal, and never even had any idea that you were going to follow that path when you left your medical career, your rot- budding medical career in East Baltimore. So I guess walk us through that path of just how following the most interesting path for you is ended up working out yeah so that you're right you're absolutely right you know exactly that history and the things that drive me and when students or professors or deans or presidents of universities say what should i do with my life i say i have no idea what you should do with your life let's talk about what would be exciting to do with your life and and my advice is always you know there are people who are exceptions but for the most part none of us really know what we want to do and if we think we know what we want to do. We could be entirely wrong. So there are people who, you know, design their life to be, you know, president of a university or the CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation. And then they take every, as um, Yogi Berra said, if there's a, a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they take whatever they think that fork will lead to. And I say that is a really bad strategy because one, you may hate the path. 
the, the adventure getting to be CEO or president may not be a path that's very exciting or fun to do. So you're going to waste all your life being unhappy trying to get to a place, which, by the way, you may never get to, and which, by the way, once you get there, you might discover you hate. So why do that? So my guiding philosophy, not, I think, uh, stated, it's just the way I operate, was whenever that fork in the road came, and they come all the time, it's just most people don't notice them, it's say, all right, what am I going to do at this point in time? I'm going to do whatever it seems most exciting and fun to do at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And so when I finished my training in ophthalmology at Wilmer, uh, my wife and I decided we had had such a spectacular both professionally and socially interesting time living overseas in Bangladesh, East Pakistan. Previously, we would like, before our kids became teenagers, to spend time two or three years overseas once more mm -hmm. because it was a wonderful experience for us and I, we thought for our children. And so I just looked for something to do overseas and it turned out while I was training in ophthalmology, people came to me for advice on how to do studies about vitamin A deficiency, which I knew nothing about. So when that was they first in Baltimore. Came to me. That was in Baltimore. So, but the, they were doing studies in Central America. And I said, so I knew how to do studies. Mm -hmm. So I learned about the, the, the vitamin A deficiency, what was known about it, and helped plan and carry out some studies while I was training here in Baltimore. And I would go down, we'd go down for Christmas, New Year's, and I could take two weeks and do something in Haiti or do something in El Salvador. And as those three years advanced, um, people, I, I kept on pointing out, you know, we really don't know very much about this disease. We know something, but not a lot. Night you, blindness. Well, at that time it was vitamin A deficiency causes night blindness, and if more severe, can ca cause more severe eye disease in children. <clears throat> and it was clear to me, and I try to make it clear to others, that we don't know how extensive it is around the world, and we don't know the easiest way to prevent it uh, and how to treat a kid who has it. And so I was very fortunate to be able to get a grant and an invitation from colleagues in Indonesia who said, gee, we think we have a lot of vitamin A deficiency. Could you come here? And as I kept telling people, I have a grant. We can answer all the questions we ever wanted to know in order to be able to tackle this problem as a cause of blindness in children. Now, primarily. weren't you kind of a kid at this point, like in your late 20s or yeah, early Yeah, I was, I was in my late 20s, early so 30s. How did right? you get to lead this project? If there are already people on the ground in Indonesia, you know, because lots of people work on any project. Even It tends to be <clears> that one person gets the credit, but there's a whole team. And there were people who suspected this was happening. You already saw work in, in Central America. And then all of a sudden, you lead this landmark study. How is it that you kind of got the credit for that? Well, it wasn't so much getting credit as doing it. How did you uh, need it? No one so, else wanted it. Is that's that it? exactly. I mean, you know, in in life, there are lots of problems out there, and lots of people are familiar with the problems, but there are very few people who put A, B, and C together and say, "Okay, I can define a specific aspect of this problem which can be studied." Often people don't see that it can be studied or needs to be studied. I can, say, I can see, I can wall off an area that's critical and it can be studied. And I know how to study it. And therefore, I write up a proposal to somebody and see if I can get funding. In this case, it was from USAID and NIH. And then you go overseas and you, you have colleagues and you say, look, I've got this money. Here's a study. What do you think about 
collaborating with me on this study, and they said, yeah, that sounds pretty exciting. We know we have a problem here. We'd be interested in being in a lead of trying to understand it. And then you sort of bang your head against the wall, bringing together a staff. And, you know, when we first were setting up the staff in Indonesia, my colleagues in Indonesia, who are Indonesians, were supposed to uh, get all the cabinets and furniture and all this stuff. Uh, and the person who's head of the eye hospital where I worked, wonderful guy, Sugana, he goes ahead and slips a disc three months before I get there. So he's right. in bed and can't do anything. <laughs> I get there and discovered that sort of a third level person was put in charge of hiring the 700 staff we needed. Uh-huh. And all he hired was everybody's relatives. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that before. So I had to be the bad guy. I said, they're fired. We're not, we're going to have tests. We're going to open this up to everybody. Well, you know, it's going to be really embarrassing. And it's true. In a developing world, since there's no government services, your responsibility is providing security for people in your family. Mm -hmm. So I understood entirely where they were coming from, but they were sophisticated enough to understand that I wasn't going to play that game. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, it's the ugly, tell him it's the ugly American, we have no choice in the matter, he controls the money, we have to fire everybody. So they fired everybody and we started over again, hired a terrific team, seven, eight hundred people by the time we were done. And it was basically, so how did I get in the head? I got in it because I could see a path forward mm-hmm. and was active enough to put the grant proposal together, sell that to the funding agencies, go to Indonesia, become colleagues with people there, gain their trust, and was uh, you know pretty adamant about carrying out things in the field, which meant you know driving up and down this death-defying drive between where I was working in Jakarta at least once a week. And it was actually a whole book written about the organization and conduct of that groundbreaking study that somebody at USAID actually wrote and 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 published so it was but that's the way most of life has been for me it's if you can if you get interested in a problem and you think you know rationally about all right how do I untangle what needs to be known Mm -hmm. then you sell that usually you have to sell that to a donor which is could be NIH or USAID or a foundation because you have a detailed plan about how to start uncovering what you need to know in order to be able to act rationally upon that problem. And then you've got to be, you know, be willing to work 23 and a half hours a day making it happen because you set the example. You know, if the boss is not working 23 and a half hours a day, nobody else is going to work two hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how we would... But But you also have to... You know, gain some appreciation for local culture, and there are some things that are simply not rational, and you have to accept them. Like so, what? It, well, it's in this book it, it, that this person wrote about this project. So I remember once a week there would be a meeting of me and my four or five major senior Indonesian colleagues. So we would go over what's coming up in the coming week because we had. Teams doing research all over. There were 13,000 islands in Indonesia. Now, we didn't do 13,000 islands, but we had it over the eight or ten major islands, different studies underway. So we would go over the progress of each of the studies, and how we go forward. And at this particular moment, we literally had five teams that were going to cover a representative sample of 95% of the population looking for vitamin A deficiency and its consequences throughout the entire archipelago. 
But that basically meant six, seven major islands. So there were a lot of logistics involved. <clears throat> and so it was, I had this blackboard and I write, okay, this team one will, you know, tomorrow go here and on Wednesday they'll go there. And, and then he said, wait, 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 they can't go to that place on Wednesday. I said, well, why can't they go to that place on Wednesday? I said, ah, they don't sell petrol on Wednesday. I said, of course they sell petrol on Wednesday. Ah, oh, you're right, they sell petrol on Wednesday. No, you can't get an extra tire if you need Wednesday. It took me a couple of weeks where I would argue at a rational level with them. And then I realized there was something they knew, whether it was cultural or whatever, that they simply could not explain to me. It was outside my frame of reference. Yeah. And if they said, we can't do it on Wednesday, they knew we couldn't do it on Wednesday. They just were not in a position to tell me why we couldn't do it on Wednesday. So after a couple of weeks of stumbling through this and discovering that whenever they said it couldn't be done on Wednesday, they were absolutely right. Uh, if they said it can't be done that day, I'd say, okay, what day can it be done on? <laughs> Did you ever find out why? <clears throat> Never found out why. So at this point in the story... And I got to share something with our listeners here, something kind of really weird. So you, uh, you spoke about your ability to put together A, B, and C for a well-known problem um, that nobody really wanted to work on. The crazy thing is, once you finished up your work in Indonesia and published your results with 10,000 cases, and you said, look, vitamin A really is so great, people didn't believe your results. Not only do you have a well-known problem, at this point you have a well-known solution that people still won't accept. And so then they force you to go and do a trial in 30,000, three times the size in Nepal. I mean, that must have just been incredibly frustrating and unbelievable. I mean, gosh, you stumble upon something that's so amazing. It's actually what you found, vitamin A, uh, as a supplement for nighttime blindness, has been called the most effective health intervention in the world. And yet people... Are you showing the evidence to them? You did an actual study. I mean, you had gold standard. You had double-blind clinical trial. They're not accepting it. How are you feeling at that point? Because that's human nature. I mean, <laughs> you constantly discover other aspects of human nature. So uh, you're absolutely right about that. So the first study we did where we made this quite unanticipated observation that the children, even with the mildest vitamin A deficiency, even before they get night blind, are already dying at much higher rates. So vitamin A is actually clearly linked to increased mortality. And so we published that paper, and there was so... The whole thought that, that something as cheap and easy as vitamin A uh, could prevent childhood death was so out to lunch that it did, didn't elicit any response initially at all. I mean, nobody wrote a... It was published as a lead article in The Lancet, which is an internationally recognized uh, and esteemed journal, and they even had a supportive editorial. They said, gee, look at this thing that we didn't know. And it, not a single letter to the other, not a single person went out to either prove it or disprove it. It was so beyond the pale that it clearly wasn't true. So then we went ahead and did... And, and we, to our, you know, we said, look, this is close association. It doesn't prove that the vitamin A deficient. We just know that kids who are more deficient are a higher likelihood of dying. Maybe there's something else that's going along with the deficiency that's really the cause of death. It's not correlated, but not causal. Exactly. It was an association, but wasn't causal. See, you, you learned a lot in your year here at this yeah. point. So, you know, I like that. Um, and so we, then we went and did this first randomized trial. And that was, you know, that was, as you say, randomized trial, the gold standard, and the children who lived in the villages where we gave vitamin A had 
one-third fewer deaths. And you think, well, and that also was published as a lead article in The Lancet with a supportive editorial. Now it couldn't be ignored. So the first one, the association, was totally ignored. This one couldn't be ignored. So instead of saying, gee, that's really interesting, we ought to go out and replicate that trial and see if it's, you know, if we can show that it's true in another population. All the long knives came out. It was so outside the kid. I mean, it's a, a lot. You learn a lot about human nature when you do this stuff. Everybody was was was, was attacking, attacking us. You. Who was defending you? Nobody was defending us. It was just everyone was attacking us. But we were able to In convince. Politics, you find a similar thing where you really find out who your real friends are yeah. at this time. Yeah. Well, there'd be people who say, "Gee, that's interesting. Do you really believe it?" I mean, there's been a lot of things in my life that have been, do you really believe that? And so, then they turn out to be true. For people who may not know much about public health, there's a long history, though, of cheap things having the ability to save millions sure, of lives. Sure. We have clean water, right? right? That, right. That, is, that is so... Probably the most important thing we ever did. Washing your hands, right. boiling some water, you know, rehydration salts are very cheap to help cholera. Right. And yet, so it's not like a novel concept. Public health started with this basic concept that cheap little fixes, like washing your hands with some soap and water or boiling water, could save millions of lives. Right. So why are they so resistant to this new thing? Of course it comes... Because remember, I mean, the water thing, you know, people didn't believe in germs in those days. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a matter that you're testing what the established belief system is. And in this case, the belief system was, which, I, you know, I can't, you know, disagree with, that young kids uh, die from lots of different things and they live in, you know, particularly poor young kids in rural areas live in, in, in pretty hostile environments with lots of infectious diseases and one two cent capsule given twice a year can't possibly, you know, reverse all that. So they don't feel, they don't believe in a silver bullet and a panacea. Right. It was just, it was, you know, people who are experts in the field said, you know, they're dying of pneumonia, dying of diarrhea. Why would vitamin A have that difference? So, that first real randomized trial came out, absolutely nobody would believe us. Then we went ahead and did a second trial in Nepal, as you point out, and got exactly the same results. And now they can't deny it anymore. Now some people are getting upset. Others are saying, well, maybe we ought to go and test it. So we actually went out and found funds to have other groups test it. So it wasn't always the Johns Hopkins group. So it would you know, be more... But it took took about nine years. And I guess there were about six randomized trials later. And still... It wasn't generally accepted. And at that point, I said, I, this is unethical. I can't do any more of these studies. It's clear that this two cents worth of vitamin A will you know, save one-third of the childs who are presently dying. And so I called a meeting. The Rockefeller Foundation supported having a meeting at their conference center in Bellagio, Italy, which is a lovely place, hard to have an argument, good food, good wine, beautiful scenery, and had everybody who was involved in these studies and a couple of gurus in the area of child survival and pediatrics come. And I said, all right, we have a week. We're going to go through all the data. At the end, we're going to decide, is vitamin A deficiency bad for you? If giving improving vitamin A status by whatever means, including a, a large capsule given twice a year, will that reverse this increased mortality? And what does it seem to impact on? And we went through all the data and literally... The last morning, they everyone agreed to those sort of three questions, and I went off to a side room, typed it out on a computer, printed it out, and had everybody at the table sign in blood that they agreed 
that yes, vitamin A deficiency was bad for kids and increased their risk of dying dramatically, that improving the vitamin A status in any way that one could, including a two cent capsule twice a year, would in fact uh, save a third of all the childhood deaths on average, and that in fact measles is specifically impacted and it should be part of the standard treatment for children with measles. And then I asked everybody at the table when they went back home, because it was an international meeting, people came from all over the place. So when you go back home, what I would like you to do is to write up your experience of this meeting and the conclusions and why in your local medical journal. So over the next three or four months, a report of this meeting appeared in like six or seven different medical journals. I wrote one up for The Lancet. Uh, people wrote one up for the medical journal in South Africa. Somebody else wrote up for the British Medical Journal. And so within four months, all these experts had published articles about they came to the same conclusion. That caused WHO and the uh, World Health Organization and UNICEF, two leaders, to jointly launch a global vitamin A deficiency control. Yeah. But, but this is not uncommon. There have been areas in, in ophthalmology where I've, again, saw something, pursued it, wasn't hard to do because I could see the path, came out with the original publication, and I'll never forget this one. Actually, I did this while I was a resident and sent it off for publication just as we were leaving for Indonesia at the end of my residency. And two major journals rejected it. The third major journal accepted it, and I love keeping these both these re rejections and interesting acceptance letters. And this one said, Dear Dr. Somer, um, we've spent a long time thinking about this article, and in the end, we've decided to publish it, even though the data are hardly believable. And people for years afterwards would meet me and say, did you really believe that? And I said, of course I believed it was data. <laughs> I mean, data are data. If you collect it you know, correctly and you don't fiddle with it, it those, they speak to you. And so I what is it, Al, you. about... about popular resistance to evidence and data and science. You see today, you mentioned measles and vitamin A being able to do that. You, you have an MMR uh, vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella. You see an increased resistance to taking Think, right. vaccine. There's fake news and alternative facts when we speak about the current presidential administration, but in fact, years ago, there was fake news in that it was correlate, that taking a vaccine was correlated with autism. Right. So there's fake news and there's resistance to evidence, and it's not only in science, it's across society it's, uh, now, right. it's endemic. What does it say right. about human nature? What is it about us that we resist evidence, even the most learned of us in the white tower yeah. of academia? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, and I think it varies with the population that you're dealing with. I think in science, it is we have our belief system, mm -hmm. And uh, we've worked under that belief system for years. You know, getting the germ theory across took forever. Uh, you know, it was vapors that caused disease, not little organisms. That's what are you, are you telling me? There were little animals, little people swimming around in the water. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, we can't see them. You tell me I can't see them, but they're there. So, so science has its established way of thinking about something. And when something comes in a right, what I call right angle turns, it is very hard. And there's a long history of this. Mm -hmm. uh, people have talked about this all the time, going back to the 17th, 18th century German scientists. Who would, there was one famous one who said, it's just like the stages of grief. First, it's total denial. 
when you're given some potentially... Why is it considered bad news if you're going to change the paradigm? Nonetheless, it's considered bad. So there's grief, there's denial, then there's anger, and then there's grudging acceptance. And that's basically what happens in the scientific community. If it's a right-angle turn, if it doesn't go along the path of where people are thinking it's sort of... It's hard for at first, uh, or as, as uh, Winston Churchill famously said, uh, you can always expect the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. So, Al, as we're wrapping up this podcast episode and on the topic of stages of grief, right, it seems a lot to ask of oneself to say, you know, not only am I going to put myself in harm's way, there's going to be a tsunami. There's going to be a quarter million people drowning. There's going to be a smallpox epidemic, a civil war, exposing my child uh, to unnecessary risk and harm, going out there, going on the roads and the wherever, and, and so much hardship. And when I finally get it right, then there's going to start the stages of grief. Then I'm going to have the resistance, and then people are going to not believe me, and they're going to be angry at me. You know, why submit yourself to that? So, so to wrap up this episode, a final two-part question, why do it? Why are you so... You could have very easily made a good salary, a good living in Baltimore, treating people's eyes and being an ophthalmologist and never having left, never having caused controversy. Okay, so why why do it? And then number two, and I think I know the answer is interesting, but I'll let you say it in your own words. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, what's the impact? I mean, we've saved lives. I know, I know the answer to both these questions, but I want to hear from you. Like, like, what's the point? What will people remember about you? What is your legacy? So uh, why do it? Do it for exactly the reason you said, plus what? It is do it because uh, it clearly, I mean, as you keep getting data and you know more and more, this is the truth. You can't stop, particularly since it's data. I mean, if it's religion, you know, one person's truth is a different person's truth. Mm-hmm. But, in, but in science, there's only one truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you've stumbled upon a truth, I, and I tell young people this all the time, particularly if you stumbled upon a truth in the area that I work, sort of clinical medicine, if you stumble on a truth that can actually advance health and save lives, you have a moral responsibility to see that through. You can't just abandon it because nobody else believes it. As long as you can find a path where you can keep accumulating data that support or disprove your hypothesis. I mean, you could get it wrong. You could get it wrong at some point. But if, you, if everything keeps pushing in the same direction, you have a responsibility to bring that to fruition. And when younger colleagues who are working with me and are now very senior and have endowed chairs and things like that, we'd get very frustrated because we publish an article and we get all these negative letters to the editor. I would say, don't get angry. We will simply bury them in data. You just get do it again and again under different circumstances. You get more people under the tent, have them carry out the studies because it makes a difference. That's exactly the reason is because, not just because truth ought to be known as truth, but because it will make a difference. And I would think, I would hope most people have asked the question, what is the biggest impact they've had, would say the people that have trained with me and are multiplying in their areas the work that I did. So five smart people can do five times as much as I did. And Therefore, what I leave behind, yeah, you know, a couple of people remember the vitamin A story for a while or the glaucoma story for a while or the blindness prevention story for a while. 
But really what I'm leaving behind are the people who worked with me as young people and are now leaders in these fields on their own, and they're moving things forward. And what they're going to leave behind are the people who they train, who then become the senior people and carry on uh, the advancing science and advancing uh, health-related activities around the world. And that has been Dr. Al Somer, Professor of Ophthalmology here at Hopkins, Dean Emeritus, also at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, recipient of the Laska Prize, which for those of you who don't know, it's basically the uh, Nobel Prize for Biology, or a step a, a little different of it, uh, a prize, very prestigious. Uh, his work in vitamin A, uh, a distinguished university professor. And here's the thing about Al, uh, you know, he has had a more, you know, he has a really interesting life, and it's with intention. He has consciously sought to, uh, I guess, embody carpe diem and suck the marrow out of life, as it were. He wants to maximize his impact, and that's really what led from him led him to uh, leave individual clinical medicine and move towards population health. There's a greater magnitude of impact. He speaks about having a moral responsibility to act upon a truth that one has discovered, especially a truth in which he can save lives. He asks himself kind of a more a test here if it makes a difference. So he'll ask himself, does it make a difference? And if the answer is yes, even to one person, to tens of thousands of people, then he has an obligation to uh, do whatever it takes to make sure that that solution, that truth is known. He speaks about... Uh, he infer, one can infer that he is, in fact, someone else's legacy. Al is the student of somebody's, and, and, and he is the living uh, legacy of those who came before him and speaks about his legacy of, uh, in terms of a multiplier effect on students. So not only does he have a legacy in all the lives that currently exist and the progeny of those people whom he saved, but of course those students who he trained uh, now are able to train even more and spread his legacy in that fashion. Uh, and, and he's basically a, another link in a, in a long chain of individuals seeking to do well and save lives. So Al, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.